Well, since the beginning of Advent, if you guys have been with us, you know that we've been talking about this idea that the gospel changes everything. And we've said that the gospel changes everything because the gospel is not just the good news that God in and through Christ Jesus is making us new. That's part of it. But it's much bigger than that. The gospel is the good news that God in and through Christ Jesus is making absolutely everything new. And that begins with us, but then it continues until... It is completed, and when is that? At the day of the return of Christ, at the second advent of Jesus. That frankly, during the season of Advent, we enter into the longing for. So in other words, our Lord, who has begun to make all things new in His first advent, will complete His mission of making all things new in His second advent, at which point He will rid the world of all the things that we are incapable with our technology, that we are incapable with our medicine, that we are incapable with our counseling, that we are incapable with our court system, that we are incapable with our laws and our police forces and our armies and so forth to rid this world of, which is to say to rid it of everything we long to see it rid of. We can't do it, as wonderful as so many of those things are and as blessed as we are to have them. Christ, the King alone, can rid darkness from the heart of man. And all of the things that we long to see this world rid of are just reflections. They're manifestations of that through us and through others. So He will return and He will rid the world of all the things that we long to see it rid of, and He will fill the world with all the things that we long to see it filled with. But the question that we've been dealing with is, okay, well then great, But how do I, as a follower of that Jesus, between this day and that final day, live? And the answer is simple, conceptually. You and I are to live as the renewing agents of God in this world, or as I've been saying, as people who do what? By the power of the Spirit, in obedience to the command of God to go do this, in community with one another, so we get to do it and we get to do it together, Okay, we use and we spend these lives that God has given to us in such a way as to do what? Bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the world that we live in today, our day. God's mission is ours, and our time is now. But as we talked about last week, if we're really going to go all in on that, like if we're going to go more than just, "Ah, I think I can throw a little of this at it, But if we realize, no, 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 this is the greatest thing that I could ever be a part of. How much of me can I devote to this? Okay, if we're going to get to that perspective, then we first need to reckon with a value judgment that our minds understand intuitively, at least if we have the faith that God is and that indeed Christ is and that in fact that is His mission. So I used the analogy of a scale last week and I said, practically speaking, what we need to do is put ourselves and our mission and our absolutely everything on this side of a giant scale, and then we need to kind of truck on over here and put God and His everything, because that's what He's given to this mission in Christ, and His mission of renewing absolutely everything on this side of the scale, and then we need to cut out all of the distractions, we need to rid ourselves of all other noises, we need to pull the earplugs out of our ears that in truth we intentionally put in when it comes to this topic. We need to stop blinding our eyes, and we need to see and to hear and to feel feel the slamming of the God side of the scale into the earth while it catapults us off in somewhere into the universe. In other words, we need to deal with that and get to the point where serving the Lord with the whole of what we have is not a have to do because, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, so I guess I have to do that. No, 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 that misses the point. No, it's a, it's a, wait a minute, so, all right, let me see if I've got this right. I get to take my itty-bitty, here today, gone tomorrow, leave everything that I get in life behind, life, and I get to invest it in something 
that in the end alone matters and that will matter for forever. Yes, that's what you get to do. All right, well, then I'm all in. And last week, we looked at an example of a woman who got it. She heard the scale hit the ground. She went all in, and her name is Mary. She's this 14-year-old girl who said, okay, here's my absolutely everything. My reputation for purity, my impending marriage to this amazing young man named Joseph, that's all I have in life, which makes all that I have in life all the more precious, by the way. Less is more in that sense. But I'll venture the whole of it. Here it is. I will sacrifice, if necessary, my absolutely everything so that the Christ who will renew absolutely everything can by God's Spirit be conceived in me. And today, we're going to look at the example of her betrothed, of the really amazing young man named Joseph, of this guy who was probably 16 years old, who thought he had his whole life figured out, and who was really jazzed because he was engaged, he was betrothed to what had to be the sweetest girl in town until she turned up pregnant with what had to sound like, to sound like, though it was the truth, it had to sound like the craziest explanation for an unplanned pregnancy in the history of humanity. You know, I think our familiarity with these stories sort of anesthetizes us to the trauma of these stories for real people who actually experienced all of this stuff in real time and in real life. I mean, if you just step back from your familiarity with it for a minute and just, you know, put on Mary and Joseph's sandals, imagine the conversation that she had to have with him. Because I think she said something like, Joseph, it would be good for you to sit down for this. You know, because I have been giving a lot of thought over the last couple of days as to how to say this to you. And I, to be honest with you, there's just no easy way to do this. I mean, I, I don't have a category for... I've never had to handle something like this before. I don't think anybody's ever had to handle something like this before. So I'm just going to tell you what happened. And, and I just pray that you can receive it. So here's the deal. Last Thursday, an angel of God from the presence of the Almighty appeared to me, and incidentally, he had a really cool name. His name is Gabriel, so if we make it past this conversation, we might want to keep that name in mind for the future. But he appeared to me, and no, an angel appeared. Yeah, like from heaven. No, he came from heaven. His name was Gabriel. I mentioned that earlier. I think it's a good... No, there were no other witnesses. Well, no, I didn't. I didn't. I... I mean, I'm assuming he was physically there. He didn't, you don't poke an angel in the chest, Joseph, when he shows up to see you. You're just, just gonna, you haven't had this experience yet, so you're just going to have to go with me. Just You know what? Zip it. Let me finish. So, uh, angel, Gabriel, cool name, from heaven, showed up and told me, this is the, I know you thought it was good that you were seated previously, but he told me that I was going to become pregnant and that, no, not with you. That's not with anyone else either. He said that the Holy Spirit would overshadow me, that the power of the Most High would come upon me, so that the child who has, by the way, this has already occurred, been conceived in me, would be the Son of God. So Joseph, here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that somehow you can receive that and take me as your wife and join me in this mission. But here's the deal, and it's got to be obvious to you, it's going to cost you everything. You're absolutely everything gone. 
So we find Joseph's story in Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18, where Matthew says this. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Here it comes from Joseph's perspective. When Jesus' mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, meaning before the actual wedding ceremony occurred, and frankly, before the marriage was physically consummated. That's what's in view here. She was found to be with child, but here's the catch. It was a child that was conceived from the Holy Spirit. And so here's the thing. Again, we already know all of that. And we already know all of that because we know the Christmas story. We've heard it a thousand times. Okay, but Joseph doesn't know any of this. He doesn't know the Christmas story. He's in the Christmas story. Like, this is happening to him in real time. And all he knows at this moment is that he's devastated. He's heartbroken. He's humiliated. He's rejected. He's wondering who in the heck in this village she prefers more than him. That's it. And suddenly he finds himself unwittingly thrust into the midst of a village-wide scandal that he absolutely cannot deny dealing with. He has to do something. So what will he do? Well, back in Joseph's day, the godly parents of godly kids like Mary and Joseph would watch these kids grow up in their town. They would identify these other godly kids. And then they would seek each other out as families. And then their families would enter into binding, legal, written covenants. Think contracts, but more serious. By which they would then join their 12 to 13 to 14 year old daughters with their 14 to 15 to 16 year old sons in marriage. And so significant was this covenant that they were actually referred to as husband and wife before the wedding ceremony took place. And we'll actually see an example of that in this story. Joseph is referred to as Mary's husband, Joseph. But they're not married yet, but actually kind of, sort of, they're married before they're married is the idea. And the only way that you could terminate one of these covenants was by death or divorce. So a little different from our engagement is my point. And what it began, this covenant, was a one-year probationary period called the period of betrothal. And here's what would happen in the period of betrothal. The prospective bride would prove her purity how? Well, number one way how? By not becoming pregnant. And the prospective groom would prove his ability to take care of her how? Well, practically speaking, by adding a room to his dad's house. By building a home for them. By creating a place for them to live. And then at the end of that year, the wedding would take place. And here's how it would happen. The groom with a torch-lit parade would go at night to the home of his bride where he would receive her from the hand of her father and then followed by their whole family, her whole family, he would walk back with her, leading her back to the home that he had created for her. And a week-long like festival-type feast would break out that the whole village was invited to. It was absolutely amazing. And, you know, that's what Joseph thought he was signing up for when his parents, I mean, frankly, literally signed him up to marry this woman. And that's now also all of those expectations would have come just sort of shattering down all around him. Because if Joseph knows anything at this point in the story, it is that he is not the dad. It's the only thing he knows for sure. She's pregnant. I'm not the dad. That much I'm sure of. Nothing else. Which means that Joseph must have necessarily assumed the same thing has happened that everybody else in the village assumed must have happened as well, that she's become pregnant by one of two ways, either by committing adultery, and that's what it would have been. 
They were husband and wife before they were husband and wife, you see. Or that she's been raped. Somebody has forced themselves upon her. And Joseph has to deal with this. And so he has four options under the law. Option number one, if she was a consensual partner in this act of adultery, then he could, at least under the law of God, under the law of Rome, I think it would have been different in this day, but he could, at least under the law of God, seek to have her stoned to death, feel the weight of that, and if she was able to identify or did, willing to identify the person that she committed adultery with, have that person stoned to death. So that's option number one. Option number two is, if she's been raped, she would be held guiltless and he would take her as his wife. But if she could identify her offender, then the stones got thrown at him. And if you just step out of the options for a second and think about this whole thing from Mary's perspective, if you're looking for an alibi, if you're looking for kind of a smooth way to land this plane, okay? And if you're willing to be dishonest, wouldn't you go that route? Wouldn't you think, man, you know, I'm pregnant, but it's by the Holy Spirit and the angel gave it. And they're like, yeah, you know what? Nobody's going to buy this. So here's where I'm going. I was raped and I don't know who did it. Joseph, you're going to have to take me as your wife. She doesn't do that. She's remarkable, this young girl. Amazing, amazing person. Anyway, option number three. Joseph could divorce her publicly and vindicate himself before the whole village and the doing of it, or he can divorce her privately. And that's the most merciful option, and that's what he chooses to do. And so we read about Joseph, verse 19. It says, and her husband. So there's the language. Joseph being a, and this is very significant, a just man. Here's what Matthew's not doing. He's not just describing Joseph and saying, hey, if you guys would have known Joseph, you would have thought he was a really great guy. That's not it. It's not a description. It's a title. It's a label. It is a designation of honor that was recognizable in their day and in their culture and that was only given to men who studied and, and learned and scrupulously obeyed the Scripture so much so that the whole community designated that one as a just man. Short of being a priest or a prophet, it was the highest reputation that you could gain. Significant. Mary's husband, Joseph, being a just man... And so you can imagine the pressure to divorce her publicly, can't you? Probably mostly coming from his family, who the whole family's betrayed, or so they think. They're the ones who negotiated the agreement. Joseph, you know what? You're a just man. You need to vindicate yourself from this. You need to do this publicly. Nevertheless, Joseph, being a just man, and yet being also committed to mercy, being unwilling to put her to shame, even though at this point in the narrative he really believes that she's done something shameful and brought shame on him too. Resolve to divorce her quietly, to take the more merciful option. And as a total side note to the whole deal, I think that's instructive. And here's why, because I think we are really quick oftentimes to deal out justice. And even though of all the peoples of the earth, you know, who should know this, like we ourselves have been shown the most mercy, unmerited favor more than anyone else. What that ought to do is cultivate hearts of mercy within us, and it ought to make us very quick instead to deal out mercy. And I think at no time is it more true than we're willing to deal out the justice piece than when we've been offended or when we've been hurt or when we've been embarrassed or maybe somebody that we care for, but not Joseph. 
He's a good man, this guy. So Mary's husband, Joseph, being a just and yet also merciful guy and being therefore unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly or privately as opposed to publicly. But then we read that as he considered these things, behold, and now it's his turn, and Mary had to be really excited about this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, yes, in a dream, saying, and this is not a suggestion, and the reason I point that out is because God doesn't come to us with suggestions. He doesn't offer us advice. He's too wise, loving, and good for that. And he knows that if he comes to us with advice, nine times out of ten, we'll do what we want instead. And it won't be a good call. The Lord who has created the world physically with what? Laws of physics that incidentally work. Has created the world morally with what? Laws of morality that incidentally lead to a life of freedom as opposed to slavery. Of safety as opposed to peril. Oh, how we resist and run from them and we feel suffocated until we're in an addiction that literally suffocates us. God doesn't come with advice. He comes with commands from a heart of love. And so he comes to tell Joseph what to do. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And you say, well, why would he fear to take Mary as his wife? Well, that's simple, isn't it? Because it's going to cost him his absolutely everything. All that he had was his reputation of being a just man. And if he marries Mary, and that was not one of the four options. If he marries, Mary. So option number five. And then if he follows command number two, which we'll hear in a second, which is name this child. Okay, everybody in town is going to assume that he's the father of this child. Why else would he marry her? And naming a child in that culture was to state legally, this is my son. It's my child. So then what is everybody going to immediately assume? They're not just going to assume that he, like Mary, is impure. They're going to assume that he is in all likelihood far more impure than her because men are typically the aggressors, are we not? Oh, it's his fault. I get it. Well, that makes sense because Mary was this, is this virtuous girl. I mean, it So if he marries Mary, he's going to lose his label of just man, and he's going to gain a new label, which in Hebrew is called Am Ha-Aretz. It means people of the land. It's the worst reputation you can gain. So he goes from the top to the bottom by doing this. And so again, the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is in fact from the Holy Spirit, just as she's reported to you. So now you can imagine the follow-up conversation, can't you, right? I told you. You need to listen to me. And she will bear a son. And here's what you, Joseph, will then do for that son. You'll name him. And you'll call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. And here's why that's a perfect name for him. For he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew steps out of the story and says, let me give you my commentary on this. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where 750-ish years before Jesus was conceived, Isaiah said this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And here's why that name fits. Because that's who He is. 
He is the invisible God made visible. He is the intangible God made tangible. As I've said in the past, He's the incomprehensible God. All right, listen, still incomprehensible. But good grief, He came to us in the most comprehensible form possible. Real flesh and blood to save us from our sin. To cleanse us from our impurities. Hang on to that. So what does that do? Well, it brings us, as we saw last week with Mary, to the great climactic question of the whole story, which really isn't climactic, because we already know the answer. But what's the question? It's what did Joseph do? So what did he do? You know the answer. Verse 24, it says that when Joseph woke from sleep, he sacrificed his absolutely everything in favor of God's mission to renew absolutely everything. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, very protective of the paternity of this child. And he called his name Jesus as he had been commanded. And then I think that as the Lord grew up in the home of this man, he taught his son. Jesus as a man learned, you see. I don't completely understand that, but I also don't expect to completely understand the infinite with my tiny little finite mind. And I think one of the things that he learned from Joseph is this reality of a costly obedience that's worth it. That's not a have to do, but that's a get to do, or as I've said a hundred times now, that God's mission of renewing everything, you know what, it actually is worth your absolutely everything, even if that's actually in the end what it requires. I think that's captured in a, um, in a very insightful 17th century painting by an artist called De La Tour. That's his last name. The name of the painting is Joseph the Carpenter. And if you look at the painting, it has a message to it. So you can see Jesus and Joseph, and they're working in his carpentry shop, and apparently it's at night, so they're probably hardworking, you know, on into the evening. And Jesus is, I don't know, maybe nine or ten, and he's sitting there with a candle holding it so that Joseph can work in the light of the candle. And you can see Joseph bending over there working with an auger on a piece of wood laid across the ground. But if you, if you look at the picture, you can see that the auger in the hands of Joseph at this point is in the shape of a cross. And as you look at some of the timbers, you can see that they seem to gesture in that same kind of a shape with the Lord sort of sitting at the head. And I think the message of the painting is pretty clear. It is that Jesus learned from Joseph, even as he learned from Mary, that the mission of the Lord is a costly mission, but the cost of the mission is one that is worth paying and doing joyfully. It's for the joy set before him that we're told that he went to the cross. And what is the joy, or really who? It's you. It's the thought of you. It's the eternity with you. And when he grew up, the Lord gave his absolutely everything to give absolutely everything to you. And it was a get to do, which is amazing. How does Jesus describe the gospel, by the way? I mean, he does it in a lot of ways. But one of the ways that he does this is after the pattern of the marriage customs of his day. Listen to what he says in John 14, beginning in verse 2. He says, in my father's house. Now stop. So who is he then? He is a son who has a father that has a house. You following? In my father's house are what? Many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I, as your groom is the idea, go to prepare a place in my father's house is the point for you, my bride, my people, my church. 
thus proving that I am capable of caring for you and for forever. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again in a torch-lit, if you will, procession. It's going to be a big deal for all to see. And I will take you to Myself so that where I am you may be also. But what's the problem? Well, the problem is we have failed in our period of probation. And not just like a little bit. Like Mary, you know, just apparently has failed. No, 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 no. I have not apparently failed. (laughs) I have gone all in on failure. And I'm just going to, you know, like I don't know all of you, but so have you. Okay, just go with it. All right? You have. We have made ourselves impure in a way that we cannot fix. And so what does Christ our groom do? Well, He divorces us. Is that it? He destroys us. Death, that's the other way to get out of the covenant. No. He so loves that He Himself gives His absolutely everything to make us fit for Him. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And the day will come when He returns to to take us, to give us the new heavens and the new earth, the place cleansed of all the things that, yeah, we'd like to see gone, and full of all the things that we long to enjoy in an infinite measure. And between that day and now, all right, here's how we're to live as the renewing agents of God who have what? (laughs) Who have heard the thud. Who have been sent skyrocketing off into the universe in that grand reversal. People who are committed to the fact that God's renewal of absolutely everything is worth our absolutely everything and good grief not as a have to do, but as a wow, I get to do that. That's what Mary did. That's what Joseph did. Far more significantly, that's what Jesus did. And so then here's the climactic question. What am I going to do? What are you going to do? That's the real question of each of these stories as we move through them. So I'm going to ask you some questions and close. Do you treat the command of the Lord to give your absolutely everything, to His mission of renewing absolutely everything, as a command or suggestion? Which is it? Secondly, are you taking your itty-bitty, you know, here today, gone tomorrow, I'm going to leave it all behind when I die, and that won't be too long from now. Sorry, just not trying to be a bummer, but it's true, it goes fast. Life, and investing it in that which will last forever. And that in the end, that's what's going to matter. Thirdly, how could you or should you do that? Like, if you had to identify the first step in that direction... What is it? I tend to see that the Spirit comes to me and goes, yeah, here's the next step. Not here's here's the next ten steps. Here's the next step. So what is that step? Fourthly, do you stand for justice and for mercy? And in what measure and who in your life right now maybe just needs mercy from you? Fifthly, what are the witnesses in your life learning from you specifically about the value of God's mission to renew absolutely everything? Those who witness how you live and what you do and the value judgments 
that you make. Because Jesus learned, I think, a lot from humble and from godly and from just and merciful Joseph. And then the last one is this. It's do you know this Jesus, God with us who came to save us from our sins, to renew us, and to deliver us to a renewed world. He gave His absolutely everything so that you could have absolutely everything, utterly and entirely, as His free gift. Therein is your groom. And that's available to all who come to Him and simply say, yep, I think I got it. So here's my sin. (laughs) All my impurities that I can't do a thing about. And as a total get-to-do, here's me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for not divorcing us. Lord, for not destroying us in our unfaithfulness. But we thank You for an overcoming love evidenced most profoundly at the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank You that instead of staying away from us through a supernatural conception, You came to us clothed in real flesh and blood that we might see the face of God and the face of Christ, that we might sense the heart of God and the heart of Christ, that we might experience the presence of God in the presence of Christ, and that we might know the mercy of God as He satisfies the justice of God, but for us in the sacrifice of Christ. That is beauty. That is mercy. And so then, Lord, awaken us even as Joseph awoke from his dream. Awaken us from the sleep of this life, from all of the things that lull us to sleep in this life, and take us off mission and help us to see how your mission can gather up every aspect of our daily lives and transform them into that which for forever matters as we sacrifice ourselves to You in return for all that You've done for us. And as a get-to-do, give ourselves wholly to Your mission of renewing all things. So do all of this, Lord, that You might receive glory and that we might know Your joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.